All right, so we're continuing our study in Isaiah. Well, let's pray. Lord Jesus, hmm. Lord, I'm just so thankful for your love for us, God. I thank you that you love us enough to speak the truth to us. Lord, you're not content to leave us out there playing in the middle of the freeway, but you're willing to, to confront us with the reality, with the truth, God, of, of our situation. Father, it's not good a place for us to play in the middle of a freeway. So, Father, you do not hesitate at all. In fact, not only do you not hesitate to warn us about playing in the middle of the freeway, you actually run out into the middle of the freeway yourself and take the hit for us as you throw us out of the way. Lord, that's the kind of love that you have for us, Lord. So help us, Jesus, to put ourselves aside this morning. Put aside our fear, God. Put aside our pride. Put aside what we think we know, God, and open our ears to what you know, what you know about us, what you know about our, our life, our situation, God, that we might be saved by your word, by your precious word, your precious loving truth, God, in your son's name, amen. All right, so when I was just graduated high school, I don't know, 18, 19, something like that, 18, I think I was 18 when I graduated. When I graduated high school, 18, my brother, who lived in Lake Forest, just over the mountain, invited me to come and rent a room from them and get a, get a full-time job and rent a room. I think he knew, you know, me being the type C temperament kind of person that I might just sort of be needing some help and push and direction. So he, he invited me to come live with him, which I did. Got a job at American McGaw in Irvine and live, was living with them in their townhouse in uh, Lake Forest. And pretty quickly, they got tired of having this 18-year-old living in their, <laughs> in their little townhouse. So I found a house in Irvine and rented a house with, uh, and found some roommates and eventually found a job at, um, at an architectural firm that was, had their offices on the outer rim of Fashion Island. If you're familiar with Fashion Island, there's a big circle in there and one of those business buildings there, and I convinced my roommates to rent an apartment on Balboa Island. So I, we were living, we were sharing, I was, you know, 19 years old at this point, sharing an apartment on Balboa Island. My commute was from Balboa Island up the hill to Fashion Island, where I was working for this, this Orange County architect. He was a great guy to work for. It was a real fat feast and famine business, but it was a really fun guy to work for. And, you know, living the life. I was like, oh, man, I'm 19 years old. I'm living on Bobo Island. I work at this architectural firm, and this is just awesome. And, and of course, I love the water. I love sailing. I love sailing catamarans. So I bought a catamaran, and we had this catamaran that we would sail. And if you don't know anything about catamarans, it's just, it's just pure joy and pleasure to sail a catamaran, it, especially if it's, it's all about high wind. If you've got high wind with a catamaran, Forget about it. It's just awesome. I can't. I, it's <laughs> you kind of have to be there. But let me put it this way: when the conditions are right for a catamaran, can you tell I love this? When the conditions are right for a catamaran, you get out on the harness. They call it a trapeze, and the pressure of the wind on the sail, which is usually actually a big wing, the pressure will heal the boat over. Well, the catamaran, when it heals over, it lifts the one hole out of the water. And then you stand out on the edge of that hole, and then you're leaning out over the water on this trapeze. So the net effect is 
and you're working the sail just right and keeping the trim just right to just put you in that sweet spot where you have the highest possible boat speed and just enough lift up the water so that you're like a, you know, you've seen those pelicans that skim over the water. They're just like three inches above the water and they just have this effortless, beautiful glide. That's exactly what it feels like. For a moment, it's like you're that pelican just surfing on the air. And I just, oh, I loved it. It's great. I loved it. But, I, you know, I think back on that time, and really my, my overall sense of that time was actually a lot of emptiness. Like, it had all these cool elements on the outside look of it, but it just had no substance. So it just felt, and it was actually really, actually, my, my memory of that time is generally kind of sad. It's just a lot of emptiness. And, and a lot of that was about, you know, I had this image in my mind, this image of what would be bring me ultimate joy, ultimate satisfaction, ultimate pleasure. And it really had a lot to do with the whole Orange County, Emerald City ideal, right? Of a big house on the marina with this 45-foot yacht parked out in front that you could go sail to Hawaii whenever you wanted to, right? That had this image. And it wasn't even about necessarily just the joy and pleasure of those things. It was the pursuit of the image. It was the pursuit of if I could attain all these things, I would be so much more appealing to other people. You know, I would feel so much better about myself. I would, I would have this sense of wholeness that just seems to elude me no matter what I do. I, could just, I was always, the, the senses were just constantly chasing it. I was always chasing after something and never arriving, never feeling like I'd gotten there, you know. And I contrast that with probably four years later. After I turned 21, I kind of finally hit the wall and repented and turned, turned myself back to Jesus. I'd, re- I'd you know, received Christ when I was in junior high listening to Billy Graham on TV. But, you know, I kind of pretty rapidly just sort of walked away from him. I was that seed that was planted on weedy, rocky soil that just kind of got parched by the first glimpse of sunlight and walked away, but slightly after 21, I, you know, I just finally hit the wall and I said, look, you know, this is just not, this is not working for me. This is not, I'm missing something and I'm missing something really s- central. And the, and the something central, of course, is God himself, the creator himself. And so a few years after that, now I'm in this seedy little apartment in this Seedy little town, just just uh, inland from Long Beach. I won't mention now, town. I don't want to offend anybody, but and uh, sharing this apartment with this group of guys, and no water, no boat, just trying to get myself through through design school. Uh, and I look back at that time, and that that time I tell you was so full, so rich, such a blessing. I have so such fond memories of that season of my life, and the difference is Christ. The difference is. My roommates and I were worshiping the creator instead of worshiping the creation. You know, we were chasing after God, and the chase was always rewarded. It was always fulfilling. It was always sustaining. And, you know, and, and one of the greatest blessings of that season of time is I, I met this angel, this princess of the kingdom, who is trying to sneak out right this very moment <laughs> and I busted her sorry baby <laughs> but it's it's just ironic to me that you know all that chasing her around and chasing after what I thought would satisfy just left me empty 
But then at the point where I had shifted my, my desire, my focus, and my pursuit to Christ, I think about those, about those times in my life, and, and it's just so rich and so full, and there's all these blessings that continue. And as I said, I just have this amazing princess that I live with that said, I'm just so thankful for the Lord. So, so that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Ready to read some verses? Okay, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5, we'll continue in chapter 5. We Last week, as you recall, or you may recall, we talked about the vineyard that the Lord planted, and the vineyard that the Lord planted was God's, his own people. And God had really taken care of his people. He had planted them on a fertile hill. He had cultivated the soil. He had built a watchtower to protect them. And he was expecting really good fruit, fruit of justice and righteousness, but instead they were producing really bad fruit, which was bloodshed and an outcry. And we talked about last week how, you know what, one way to guard against producing that kind of fruit is to put yourself under the teaching of the Lord and to put yourself in a place of being connected to the biblical community of God, right? That's one way to guard against producing those those fruits of bloodshed and an outcry where we harm and hurt people and, and act unjustly towards others and towards God. This morning, I think we're going to really get to the, more of the root of those bad fruit. And as the title implies or says, we're going to look at the sour grapes of pride. Okay, so this morning is all about pride and just how insidious pride is and how pride inoculates us from the effectiveness of the Word of God and from the effectiveness of the biblical community, right? You can, if you have a pride issue in your life, it will prevent even what I said last week from being effective. It will prevent the Word of God from having its effect. It will prevent this biblical community of coming together and speaking the truth in love. It will prevent that from changing you and, and growing you and maturing you in the Christ. So let's, let's look at the passage, starting verse 8. The rest of this chapter, Isaiah has, uh, the Holy Spirit is speaking through Isaiah and, and gives the people, God's people, the men of Judah, he gives them uh, a, uh, a series of woes, okay? Woe is something that's very significant in Scripture. What does woe mean? What does it mean when God says woe to you? Well, it's not a good thing, right? It's a, bad, it's a bad day if God says, woe to you, okay? That's, that's a bad sign. So the, 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 the kind of idea of woe is, look, you have a problem. God's saying, look, you guys have a problem, and it's really a critical problem. It's a really sad problem, and it's a problem that's going to have really significant consequences. It's a problem that's going to result in curse curses rather than blessings, okay? So when God says woe to you, that's your clue that, you know what, you've got a real problem, and you probably can't see it, but it's going to cause all kinds of harm and damage and curse in your, cursing in your life, okay? So he has six woes and four therefores. This morning, we're going to hit only two of the six woes. Yeah? Good news? We're not going to do all six. We'll do two. So we'll start in verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. 
The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Okay, I'm going to just stop there. So the first woe is woe to you who join house to house and add field to field. What, what's wrong with joining house to house and adding field to field, right? What's particularly in our society, what's wrong with, you know, buying your neighbor's property and making a bigger farm or buying your neighbor's house and expanding your house? Is there, is there anything inherently wrong with that? Well, for, for the men of Judah, the people of Israel, the, the Levitical law expressly uh, pro, pro, uh, does not allow them to sell and buy their neighbor's property. They can... In a way, you can buy your neighbor's property, but at some point, you're, you're going to, that property is going to go back to the original family that owns that property. So let me explain it this way. I'm sorry? Seven years. So, <coughs> thanks, Manny. <coughs> sorry. So th- here's, here's how it's built. The Mosaic Law says every seventh year, you're going to give your land a rest. You're not going to till your soil. You're not going to plant crops. You're just going to live off the previous year's produce, and you're just going to give the land a rest. And it's really built on this whole idea of six days creation, seventh day rest. And God builds that out into this whole program where not only do you work for six days and then rest on the seventh, you also work the land for six years, and then on the seventh year, you let the land rest. Okay, what's God saying in that? Why is he doing this? Well, he's creating a metaphor. He's creating an image, a picture of how, how it is that we are going to live, die, and then rest for all of eternity. Okay, so, and he goes more, he goes beyond that. The Levitical law goes from, okay, you're going you're gonna to till the land for six years and then seven years you're going to give a rest. Then he says, after you've had seven of those sevens, meaning 49 years, after you've done that seven-year rest thing seven times, meaning 49 years, that 50th year is a jubilee. And what happens on the jubilee year? What happens on the jubilee is everybody is restored to the land that God originally gave them when they entered into the promised land, right? So there's a lot of really interesting things that, that come out of this. One is you can never become this massive you know, Irvine Ranch land baron person. Because if, if people are obeying God's law, every 50th year, basically each generation, all the families are able to return to their original land or, and be restored to their original inheritance. And that's an amazing social program because if you've had a hard time and you had to sell off your land and you've lost your land because of hard times, whatever, every 50th year, the family has a chance to start over again. You know, they get a fresh start, a new lease on life, so to speak. So how does that work then? If, I'm, if, I'm go- if, if I want to sell my property, I just can't support the property that's been given me, that's my inheritance, and I want to sell it, the law would allow you to essentially lease it to your neighbor. You could, you could say, yeah, I'm selling it to you, but technically what you're really doing is you're leasing it to the neighbor, and the neighbor would buy it for the price that that land is going to, as a, the calculation is based on how fruitful will the land be 
between now and the next Jubilee. So if you've got, you know, 10 more years to the next Jubilee, the lease has this value. If you've got 50 more years to the next Jubilee, the land has this much lease value, right? Following me and all that? So Levitical law leaves room for people who come on hard times that they could lease out their property. But every 50th year, that's done. Lease is terminated, lease is done, and everybody gets to move back to the land of their inheritance, just like our lease is going to be done in October, right? And we will um, move to another location. But the po- here's the point. The point is the men of Judah are ignoring that whole system. When, when the Jubilee year comes, they say, no, I, I bought this land fair and square. It's my land. I own it. I'm not giving it back to that family. Why are they doing that? Because to them, wealth, being a real estate real estate tycoon, owning half of Orange County like the Irvine Company does, is what their goal is. It's their pursuit. It's the thing that consumes the direction of their life. It's their mission. It's their what? It's their idol, right? And idolatry is the, is the issue all the way through Isaiah. And what is Id- idolatry? We've talked about that a lot. Idolatry is basically worshiping the created rather than worshiping the creator, right? So idolatry is anytime you elevate what is created up to the status of being your God, now you've entered into idolatry. And they've elevated wealth, the the acquisition of property. And, of course, in an agrarian culture, wealth is all about property. You know, they're one and the same thing, more property, more wealth. So they're all about their wealth and acquiring more and more and more wealth, right? And to the point where they disobey God. And when we disobey God, what are we really saying? We're saying, look, uh, God, I know better than you, right? I trust myself more than I trust you. And that's the whole basis of idolatry. The whole basis of idolatry is, look, you know, I trust my own idea of what's going to bring me pleasure and joy and blessing and fullness more than I trust what your idea of blessing and pleasure and fullness is. That's idolatry, and that's what these guys are doing. <coughs> what's, the, what's the alternative to that sort of perspective? I, I like this passage in Timothy. We'll look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verse 17 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who, catch this, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Okay, it's not that God is opposed to or against uh, our enjoyment or our pleasure or our fullness or our blessing, but he just wants us to enjoy that in the context of understanding that he's God and that we, the operate, we operate within the bounds of, of what he's prescribed to us. That's going to maximize our joy. I love uh, Piper, John Piper's ministry. Sort of the one of the big ideas of John Piper's ministry is the idea of Christian hedonism. It's the idea that you know what the greatest blessing, the greatest fullness, the greatest wealth is found in Christ. Is found in, in God. Therefore, that makes Christians the greatest hedonists of all time, right? Because we're devoted to the source 
of, that, of the greatest blessing. But it's not that we're pursuing the blessing in and of itself. We're pursuing the person of God, the person of Christ, and an outcome, a fruit, a grape of that relationship is blessing and fullness. Notice that when Paul, what Paul's saying to Timothy, notice that he doesn't say, uh, as for the rich, <coughs> sorry, for my cough this morning, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor set their hopes on uncertain riches. He doesn't say, tell them, give away everything they own, although maybe Christ would ask them to do that. In fact, Christ did ask the, the young rich ruler to do that, right? Because because the young rich ruler had made that his idol. And so Jesus zeroed right into the core of his idol and said, look, sell everything you have and come follow me, and you'll have the kingdom of God. And he went away sorrowful because he owned much, right? That was his God. That was his idol. But Paul's not saying, you know, richness is inherently a bad thing, but make sure that they, they A, don't, don't use their wealth to translate into some idea that somehow they're better than others, that they're haughty, or, or, or that they set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, that they, that they make their God, you know, worldly riches rather than God himself, right? So this problem of idolatry is exactly what's going on in God's vineyard where the men of Judah, the people of Israel, have made their God the accumulation of wealth. All right? So the principle here, the sad problem, number one, is, um, is when we have a godless pursuit of wealth. The key word there is godless, right? That we're pursuing wealth in a way that is exclusive of God or even contrary to God's purposes and desires for our lives. All right? That, that is a sad problem. That's a woe. And what's the sad resort? More produces less until there is nothing. Let's look back again at Isaiah uh, 5a. He says, verse 10, it says, For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephath. This is a really critical, important spiritual principle. The more you chase after something that is outside what God desires for you, or the more you try to replace God with some with wealth, the more your work becomes ineffectual. The more you chase it, the, more, the further away it seems to get. In my opening story, it's like, you know what? I, I was on the spot any 19, 19 20-year-old would want to be. I was living on Balboa Island. I, I had my sailboat. I had this cool job. It's like, but, you know, I think back at that time, and it just is empty, and it's sad. Uh, the best word, I, the, the first feeling I feel when I think about that time, sad. Just empty. There was nothing there. It was just kind of all surface. And the thing about chasing after the created rather than the creator is it has this diminishing return. It's like the more we chase it, the less we get. The more these guys buy more and more property, the less productive each acre of that pro- property is. And that's a principle, that's a spiritual principle that God has as a means of correction to say, look, quit chasing after this stuff because it's only going to result in less and less and less until you really have nothing at all. But rather, chase after me, seek me, and you'll have blessing beyond what you can hope for or imagine. <coughs> Sorry. 
That makes sense? Really sorry for my, my uh, cough this morning. I, uh, I finally had an excuse to use a Star Wars quote this morning. It's in your bulletin. <laughs> so the quote is, Princess Leia says to Governor Tarkin, who's about ready to nuke her, her home planet, she says, the more you tighten your grip, Tarkin, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. But even though, you know, the writers of Star Wars get this principle that it's like the more we, the more we try to hang on to this life and pursue the created and amass more things, the more it just seems like life just escapes us. Life slips away from us. We don't experience that rich, deep blessing that we might have. Amen? Let's continue verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feast. (coughs) Oh, boy. That would be great. Thank you. Thanks. All right. See, this is a caring, loving church. It's like three people. I've tried to jump on that one. Um, Verse 13, Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honor men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. So, is God against pleasure? Is God against having a nice red glass of wine with a nice full meal? Thank you, Izzy. Appreciate that. Um, of course not. Not at all. I, I, who created pleasure? Right? Who is the author of, of any pleasure you can think of if it's not God? But what happens What happens when we pursue pleasure as our God? It gets distorted and gets bent and it becomes this destructive thing that leaves us an empty shell, right? So does Scripture say, hey, don't ever drink a single drop of, of, of wine? It doesn't say that. But what does Scripture say? Scripture says don't be drunk with wine. Don't, ex- don't, go and don't live in excess, right? Don't believe that if it's a good thing, more of it's going to be a better thing, okay? More is not always more. As, what's his name? Mies van der Rohe, German architect, I think in the early part of the 20th century, his famous quote is, and you've probably heard it before, is less is more, right? He's the author of the whole Bauhaus school of architecture that really, that the modern skyscraper is a direct result of his his thinking and his school of architecture in Germany, Bauhaus School of Architecture. Very simple, less is more. Clean lines, get back to the basics. Good architecture starts with the brick, and it's all about that brick, the simplicity of a brick, right? That's, that's Mies van der Rohe. And really, there's a spiritual principle there, that less is more. You know what? And, it, and I don't even know that it's less is more, but... Fruit enjoyed from within the context of God's provision and God's guideline and 
taken from the hand of the Lord directly is the most pleasurable fruit we can enjoy. It's the most satisfying fruit we can enjoy. Okay? I remember quite a while ago, um, Don and I had a friend who had come to the Lord. Pretty dramatic conversion. In fact, part of that conversion involved him handing over a, a, an unregistered pistol <laughs> to Donna and I. I like, freaked me out. I didn't know what to do with it. I'm like, what am I going to do with this pistol? Who knows what kind of crimes this gun might have been involved in. And we eventually called the Brea, Brea police, and they were happy to come and, and take it and relieve, relieve me of this pistol, fortunately. But, um, but in that process, he actually wound up serving a, a prison sentence. And he was in prison as a believer, and Don and I went and visited him one day and spent the day with him. And, uh, you know, it, it was up in the, the Central Valley. And, you know, it was, a, it was pretty, to be honest, it was a pretty tough day. Going and visiting someone in the prison is not my idea of, of a really great way to enjoy your Saturday, okay? Um, but here's something that happened that I didn't expect and was really interesting. It's just, it, it's just interesting, but... After we visited him, I know it was a blessing to him. That was a good thing. I felt like, okay, that was good. That was right. I'm glad we did that. Um, and I'm ready to get home. It had been a long day. I was ready to get home. So we stopped at this restaurant to have dinner. And it's this kind of mid-level chain, national chain restaurant. We've eaten there a bunch of times. And it's okay. You know, it's a good, decent food. It's okay. But for some reason, that dinner we had at that evening it was probably one of the best tasting meals I think I've ever had. It was just, we ordered the coconut shrimp, and, and then we had a little steak. And every aspect of it was just, ah, it just seemed like God had turned on every taste bud in just the proper way. And it was just, it still ranks as one of the best tasting dinners I've had. And since then, we've eaten there plenty of times. And it's, and it's like night and day. I mean, it's nothing comes close to that, having that dinner. And I just wonder, again, thinking about, you know, pleasure and enjoyment, how do we even sense pleasure? How do we even take in enjoyment if not through this instrument of our body that God has created? (coughs) Man. Um. Maybe that's the Lord's way for me to just quiet down and let you think about that for a moment. <laughs> but I think there is a, a principle there that as we seek the Creator, as we worship the Creator, as we put our ultimate hope and faith and trust in the Creator, He gives us capacities for enjoying His blessings that are unique and that are powerful and frankly I think John Piper has it right. I think Christians are the ultimate hedonists because we can enjoy things in, at a level and in, at, a, at a place of contentment that the world can't really take in and enjoy. And in fact, as we make I- idols out of the created things, we enjoy what used to be mildly satisfying or even kind of pleasurable, rapidly just becomes stale and dull. And, and it's hard for us to even get to the same level of, of the high, right? I mean, that's the whole addictive cycle. You know, the, the alcohol that used to get us high doesn't get us high anymore, so we have to consume more. 
the drug that we used to use doesn't give us the same quality of high anymore, so we have to find another drug, a, a harder drug, right? And, and that goes beyond drink and, 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 and chemicals. It goes to every aspect of our life and what we're pursuing. When we pursue it apart from God or outside of God's parameters or in place, most significantly, in place of God. <coughs> Think about that for a moment. Oh, drugs. <laughs> Thank you, Patricia. Actually, not drugs. They're lozenges. Over-the-counter. I'm just saying, over-the-counter lozenges. <laughs> All right, so what's the principle here? What's the sad problem number two? Godless pursuit of joy and pleasure produces the sad result of exile, hunger, and thirst. Look at that passage again in, uh, <clears throat> uh, I'll start in 13. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Exile is a really important idea, particularly in the Hebrew mind. I mean, for, for Christians, we kind of look at the, the, the life and work of ministry as, as ground zero, as at the pivot point of our faith. For Hebrews, they look at the exile. The exile is huge to them. And the reason it's huge is because the exile means separation from God. And, of course, separation from God is the ultimate curse. And, in fact, I think the exile of, the, of, of Judah to Babylon is a foreshadow of the ultimate exile of final judgment. For those who are not found in the book of life, for those who have rejected Christ, who have worshipped the created rather than the creator, the ultimate exile is eternal damnation, separation from God forever. But that's foreshadowed in this exile that Judah is just on the edge of, and they don't know it. Notice it says, therefore, behold, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. An, an alternative translation of that in the ESV is without their knowledge. And given this context and some of the other things that happen in these passages, Okay, I'll put this in my mouth, Patricia. <laughs> I'm standing here holding it. I think it works better if it's in my mouth, right? Um, I can think I can make an illustration of that somehow, right? <laughs> um, completely lost track of where I'm at. Um, so exile. They go into exile for lack of knowledge or... Or even more, the idea that they're going into exile and they don't even know it. Often we're going into some aspect of exile in our life and we don't even know it at the time. We just know we want this thing, right? Whatever this thing is. And then a year later, two years later, three years later, we notice, you know what? There's a part of me that's in exile. There's a part of me that's away from God, that's been separated out from God you know, we have this amazing capacity to compartmentalize our hearts and our minds. And we have parts of our minds that we think, you know what, nobody knows about it. Maybe even God doesn't know about it. If I just keep it quiet and don't say anything about it, maybe God won't even pay attention to it, right? But the moment we do that, the moment we separate part of ourselves off because of we're ashamed of it or we feel guilty about it, the moment we do that, what we're really doing is we're taking a piece of ourselves and putting that peace in exile, separated from God, separated from his community, from his people. 
So what's the antidote to that? I say it all the time. We need, I, we talked about it last week. We need to confess that. We just need to be honest about what's going on with ourselves. Put ourselves under the teaching of the Lord, under the word of God, and receive his correction and put our hope and faith and trust ultimately in him. And he will give us the joy and pleasures of our heart. I want to go to Psalm 16. This is, this psalm is just amazing. It, um, just really encapsulates this idea that ultimate joy and pleasure can be found in the Lord, is found in the Lord, and not in what the world is constantly trying to sell us, right? I mean, every premise of every commercial is that you need this thing. This thing is going to make you totally and ultimately fulfilled if you just get that screwdriver, electric, battery truck-powered screwdriver, right? Verse 16, this is David. He says, um, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink of offerings of blood I will pour out. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. (coughs) Man, I haven't been coughing all morning. It's like, what is it? The enemy's trying to get in my way, I think. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. (coughs) (coughs) Maybe y'all could read for me. How about that? Can we read together? Starting in verse 6. Read with me. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. Thank you. Thanks for the help. You may know, you make known to me the path of life. You want fullness of life? Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and life abundantly. You want fullness of life? You're only going to get it one place, and that's from the Lord. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. (coughs) Not just fleeting, not just fleeting happiness, Fullness of joy, abiding joy. And then I love this. At your right hand are what? Pleasures. Full on, full tilt, 100 proof pleasures. That last how long? Forevermore. I mean, when we read things like this, why do we, do you not think, Lord, what the <coughs> what's wrong with me? Other than that, I got a cough. What's wrong with me that I don't pursue you? How come, I, how come I'm not all about you? How come I'm off chasing these stupid little trinkets that I think somehow are going to bring fullness and joy to my life when I've got a living God standing right here in front of me saying, I love you, and I've atoned for you, and I've brought you into my family? 
and you have your inheritance in me. What's wrong with me? Well, I think the answer to that question comes in the next verses. So let's go there. 15. I have to find my way back real quick. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lamb graze as in their pasture, and no man shall eat among and no man shall eat among the ruins of the rich. And this is as far as we're going to go in the passage this morning. So I just want to finish here. This is where we'll spend the rest of the time. Why is it that we go chasing after these things? The answer is pride. The answer is it's all about me. The answer is I know better than you do, God, what's going to bring me joy and happiness and blessing and fullness. I know better, right? (coughs) We may not say that out loud, but we say that with our behavior. How often do we do things that are basically saying, look, God, I don't trust you. I trust me. I trust myself. And that's at the heart of idolatry. The heart of idolatry is I trust me more than I trust you. I am my own God. Even guys or gals back in this time who are carving graven images, you know, carving an idol out of wood and bowing down to it, Are they really bowing down to a wooden idol? I mean, what ultimately are they worshiping? Are they not worshiping the creation of their own hands? Are they not worshiping a God of their own creation? Are they not worshiping a God that they can control, that they they know the measure of, that sits safely there on the shelf and doesn't come out and intrude on their life, right? Is that not really what idolatry is about? And idolatry really boils down to pride. It comes down to, look, I just know better. I'm better than you, God. I know myself better than you, God. I trust myself better than I trust you. I just straight up don't trust you. And it puts you in a place of being haughty. And what's God's answer to that? What's the sad result of that haughtiness? He's going to bring you down. It's great. Johnny Cash song says, one of these days, the Lord's going to cut you down. Look it up. Um, we are going to do a Johnny Cash song in a little bit, but we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> but the, the sad result is God's going to bring you down. <clears throat> and here's the thing. Whether God, whether God says, well done, and good, well done, good and faithful servant, or God brings wrath and judgment. Either way, God is exalted. Okay? So who are we hurting in our pride and in our idolatry? We're not, hurt, we're not, we're not diminishing God. I think it hurts his heart. Okay? I definitely think God loves us. And when we, when we go chasing after his creation and worshiping his creation rather than him, it grieves his heart. But it doesn't diminish him in any way. However, it dramatically diminishes ourselves. So here's the, here's the point I think that this, that this verse is saying here. He says, but the Lord of hosts is, 
is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. So God's going to be exalted regardless. God's going to judge, judge you in justice and righteousness, and that judgment will be true and right, and God will be exalted for it. But why, why be diminished, right? Why, why, why do we want to <coughs> put ourselves in that place? Would you rather just start out humble and then be brought up by the Lord? Or would you rather start prideful and then be brought low? Which, which process do you want to sign up for? Right. So, there's, 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 it's a big problem, right? Our pride is a big problem. How, what do we do? How do we deal with this pride? But I think, you know, before, how are we doing? It's 11 o'clock. We're out of time. Okay, I have a homework assignment. We don't have time for it, so I'm going to give you a homework assignment. It's not that I'm a huge Johnny Cash fan, by the way. It's just he happens to have some lyrics that work really well. So sometime this week, look up the song that Johnny Cash wrote called Man in Black. Some of you may have heard it before. I just think it really fits with this whole passage and kind of captures the sense of it. So check it out. That's a homework assignment. In the meantime, I'm going to finish this. I'm going to go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. And I'm just going to read 11 verses here. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, (coughs) maybe I should just pray. Mm. I'm going to do this. I want to do this. Lord, I pray that you just wrap this up and help me. First couple of lyrics to this song. I want to read them real briefly. It starts off by saying, Well, you wonder why I always dress in black, why you never see bright colors on my back, and why does my appearance seem to have a somber tone? Well, there's a reason for the things that I have on. I wear the black for the poor and the beaten down, living in the hopeless, hungry side of town. I wear it for the prisoner who has long paid for his crime, but is there because he's a victim of the times. I wear the black for those who never read, who never read or listened to the words that Jesus said about the road to happiness through love and charity, why you'd think he's talking straight to you and me. Nonsense there. Lord, the road to happiness, the road to love and charity and blessing and fullness, Lord, is a road less traveled. It is a narrow gate. It is the hard way. Lord, this world goes the broad and easy way, which is chasing after creation, Lord, seeking fulfillment and blessing in your creation. But Lord, the narrow, the hard way is to go after you, to pursue you, to put aside our pride, our self-reliance, and to surrender ourselves in trust 
to your word, to your direction, to your teaching, to your fellowship. Lord, more precious is your fellowship than any of this world. Lord, empower us. Help us, Holy Spirit, to enter now into a time of worship, into a time of giving ourselves over to you once again, Lord, to surrendering our lives to you, God, to taking all our pursuits and setting them on the altar before you, God, that you might give us new life, God. We are a living sacrifice. Lord, help us to rise and walk in new life according to your purposes, according to your joy, according to your direction, your guidance. Help us to trust in that, to trust in you. In your Father's name, amen.